good to be with you again. Um, we're, we're in the Advent season, the Advent season, four Sundays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful time, even as Jason mentioned, you know, traditions that we have as families surrounding Christmas. It's a great time for us as a church to share in traditions like the Advent wreath and, um, and turning our hearts as a body toward Christ and remembering and celebrating that time. So as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas, we'll turn again to Hebrews 2. This morning, we considered this passage last week and the insight that it gives us into the incarnation, the earthly existence of Jesus. You know, most of the um, most of the heresies that emerged in the early church um, revolved around the person of Christ. There's usually some imbalance regarding his nature. Um, so there was an Egyptian preacher named Arius who said that Jesus wasn't. Um, wasn't quite Almighty God. Arius said he's he's definitely fully human, but he's he's not quite God. And then there were the the Docetists, which comes from the Greek word meaning to appear, and they said that Jesus wasn't fully human; he only appeared to be human. They reasoned how how could divine God be incarcerated in lowly flesh? Um, so you have these, these heresies that emerge kind of at both ends of the spectrum. But, but Hebrews affirms that Jesus was God. In fact, chapter 1 cites line after line from the Old Testament trying to prove that very point. So chapter 1, verse 8, for instance, says, um, Of Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, calling Jesus Almighty God who reigns over all creation on the throne. Um, to say anything less of the infant in a manger would be damning with faint praise. He is the God who reigns over all things. And yet chapter 2 of Hebrews addresses the other side of the equation, where the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for the benefit of everybody. He shared in humanity fully, even to the point of, of death. And so the question we're left with is why? Why did he share in flesh and blood and partake of humanity? So this passage, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, describes the incarnation of Jesus, which is really telling us why Christ came, why Christmas happened. And these verses actually provide numerous perspectives in answer to that question. So last week we said he came to destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death, and to deliver the captives, those ones who, because of fear of death, were held in slavery throughout all of their lives. So you have this, this image of Jesus as a conquering warrior who comes in face-to-face combat with the devil and gains the victory. And because of his victory, all the troops gain benefits as well. But in verses 17 through 18, the, the imagery shifts a bit. He's no longer uh, the warrior liberating captives, uh, but rather he is the high priest who sympathizes with the people. So observe this, this shift with me as we read Hebrews two fourteen through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So focusing on verses 17 and 18 this morning, we have two reasons, two more reasons presented that Christ shared in flesh and blood. The beginning of verse 17, it actually says that he had to be made like us in every respect. He had to be. It was by necessity. But what does that mean? You know, of course God is free. He could have chosen any number of legitimate responses to the human condition. But here Hebrews says, by necessity, he, he had to be made like us. Well, the origin of, of that necessity can be traced back to the very core of God's character, that he is a compassionate God. He's loving. And, and so what unfolds in this passage is a display of God's glory and his, and his love. In other words, the, the redeeming love of God, which is inherent to who he is, necessitated this particular course of action. Jesus became like us in every way so that by his humility, we might learn what God is like. We might learn what his character consists of. And, and what we learn is that he is sympathetic. Jesus was made like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he became a high priest. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, high priest may be an unfamiliar term for you. It's used often these days in connection with satanic or cultic practices, or if the term priest is just used alone without high priest, it's often the clergy and the Catholic church or something like that. Um, But here the term high priest refers back to the Old Testament and the work of the priests in Israel. The priest was the one who um, mediated the law to the people. He explained the law to the people. He gave counsel from God to the people and, and carried out the work of sacrifices in the temple. And, and Hebrews here is for the first time saying that Jesus is a priest. In fact, he's the ultimate high priest. Well, in what sense? Well, we see two aspects of this, this high priest. First of all, his character. He's merciful and faithful in the service of God. And then second, his work, that he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. But first of all, regarding his character, it says of his character that he is merciful and faithful. So he's merciful, meaning that he's sympathetic. And Hebrews chapter 5 actually gives us a little more insight into what this means. So if you look over in chapter 5, just a couple chapters later in verses 1 and 2, It describes a priest for us. It says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He can deal gently, and here's the key point, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. So one of the key characteristics of the high priest is that he's sympathetic toward the people because he himself is beset with weakness. This is what it means to be merciful. So that word mercy is a a rich Old Testament word 
that was reserved mostly uh, for God alone. So you might remember when Moses was up at the top of Mount Sinai, he, he asked to, to see God, and so God passes by, and he just kind of sees the backside of that. But God introduces himself on that occasion uh, and describes himself this way, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And from that point on, um, Israel constantly talked about God as one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. So this description of God is all over the Psalms. This is how Israel sang about God. He is merciful and gracious. Psalm 103, for instance, says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So he knows our human weakness. He knows our limitations. And because of that, he exercises mercy or compassion. He's merciful toward us. This is what happened to that deplorable city called Nineveh, right? God had sent Jonah to, to warn them about their sins. They, they were deep in their sin. And so God graciously gives them a warning that they should turn away from their sins so that he wouldn't destroy them. And they do. They repent and turn away from it. And so God relents of his anger toward them and shows grace instead. Well, Jonah, as he leaves the city, he's upset. He's got this self-righteous anger and he points a finger accusingly at God and says, this is why I didn't want to preach to them. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew that about God, and he, he anticipated the outcome of his preaching. That's God's character, and Nineveh benefited from that. This is what mercy is, that God sees our, our weakened condition, our, our tendency to ruin things, to mess things up. But rather than acting as an accusing judge toward us, he exercises pity and warmth. He's merciful. He's gracious. Well, stop and reflect on your own thoughts about God. How do you perceive him? How do you perceive his posture toward you? I was reading a book earlier this week, and uh, it, it positively cited the, the testimony of, of one youth worker, this story about a time when he was interacting with the youth in his youth group. And he said to them, as, uh, by way of warning, um, if you do not do God's will, he will fall upon you. He will judge you. You will incur his wrath. That is the way God is. Maybe your perception of the Father is too one-dimensional like that. Forgetting that while he does judge sin, he also exercises pity toward the pitiful. He's merciful. Elizabeth Prentice, you may have heard that name. Elizabeth Prentice wrote a book called Stepping Heavenward. She also um, wrote many hymns, one of which is More Love to Thee, O God. But Elizabeth Prentice was, was a frail woman. She, she suffered from constant um, headaches, severe headaches. She suffered intensely from chronic insomnia throughout all her life. She was described as um, morbidly sensitive with a melancholy temperament. But few people ever knew it. She always was described as having a radiant face. Um, she was full of life in the perception of many people. Um, 
In addition to her physical pain, she, uh, she lost two children. One is a newborn and one is a five-year-old. And yet, this description of her, she was radiant, full of life, because she was, she was always working to overcome the irritability brought on by her, her illness and her sufferings. But looking back on, on this struggle that she had to, you know, she was always striving to overcome her irritableness. Um, she looked back at this at, at near the end of her life, and she said, I, I used to reproach myself for religious stupidity when I was not feeling well. But now I see that God is not that God is my kind father, not my hard taskmaster, expecting me to be full of life and zeal when physically exhausted. It takes long to learn such lessons. One has to penetrate deeply into the heart of Christ to know its tenderness and sympathy and forbearance. God is gracious toward us. He is not a hard taskmaster. You know, but, but some of us may not think of God as a hard taskmaster, uh, but we do sometimes think of him as a sort of celebrity, as if we want to get his attention. Um, we want him to notice us, but, but everybody wants God's attention. You know, everyone's vying for his attention, and there's only so much of him to go around, and so we kind of assume that the only people who really catch his eye are the special ones, you know, those who seem to have their lives all together, whose marriage is all that it should be, unlike yours, and who are emotionally stable, unlike you, and who have all their besetting sins finally conquered, which you still haven't quite figured out. Well, Hebrews says, no, he, he is not a hard taskmaster, nor is he unconcerned about you, regardless of your struggles. He is not unconcerned about you. In fact, he's there with you in the midst of it, in, in the midst of those distressing affairs that you experience. He is there with you. That's what incarnation is all about, that he came with us in the midst of our struggles. So his character as a, a high priest is that he's merciful because he has shared in our weakness and, and, and the brokenness that we experience. He's inclined toward you because he was made like you in all things. He can, as chapter 5 says, he can be gentle. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself was beset with weakness. This is how God is toward our weakness. And not only the character of this high priest, but we also see here uh, the work of this high priest. That he has become a high priest in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he, he's sympathetic toward our weaknesses, but this isn't some sort of, you know, sit down with Jesus over a cup of coffee and tell him your troubles kind of sympathy. It's, it's actually much better than that. He has done something about our situation. His sympathy has led him to do more than just lend uh, an understanding ear to our struggles, but he has done something about it. His sympathy led him to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation is a, a very unfamiliar term, but, but it is a familiar concept. The, the idea is that a crime has been committed. A crime has been committed, meaning there's a, a victim and a perpetrator, right? The offender and the offended. And um, now, if things are going to be made right, you know, justice distributed, reconciliation gained, then there has to be some kind of price paid. Legitimate justice dem demands that the offense has to be addressed. 
Well, the situation is that our, our sins are the crime. And they have piled up against God. And, and for us, the perpetrators, to be brought back into fellowship with the one whom we've offended, God, some price must be paid. But God is not only just in a, in a rigid sense. He's also merciful, as we've been saying. And so Christ, by giving up his own life, pays that necessary price. The the death penalty was demanded and Christ steps in and takes that sentence. He's not simply deflecting God's wrath away from us. He's receiving the wrath of God. This isn't diversion, it's absorption. He receives all of God's wrath against our sin into himself. So this is this is a costly sympathy. You know, he was, he was merciful in spirit to the, to the point that he paid the price to pull us out of the way of God's judgment. It was a costly sympathy for him. And at the same time that he absorbs God's wrath against our sin, he is also, by that very act, uh, demanding that we turn away from sin and turn to him. Oh, think about it. What, what greater inducement could there possibly be for you to break off at once every known sin in your life than to consider the Savior hanging on the cross? Will I do this? Will I continue acting against God in this way? You know, this sin under consideration, will I continue in this while I think of my Savior hanging there? So, His death instructs us about the weight of God's crushing justice that should come against us. So pondering the cross has this kind of twin effect, these these two effects of first both leading us in gratitude toward God, uh, but also producing in us a, a depth of hatred against sin. Meditation on this sympathetic high priest as we think about him and the work that he has accomplished for us. It it bends our hearts back toward God. If we have been prone to wander away from him, this allures our hearts back to him. If you want to come alive to God, or if you want personal revival, renewal in your own heart regarding spiritual vitality, then it begins by, by meditating on Christ who was made like us, who's sympathetic because he's like us, Christ in the manger, and then continues in meditating on the one who is hanging on the cross for our sins, Christ on the cross, and, and the result of that will be a worship toward this Savior, a worship to the one who reigns over us. As Christ is in glory, we submit our lives to him, and this worship then kind of takes the form of uh, enjoying him in our hearts and obeying him in the way that we live. In other words, con- considering this sympathetic and high priest absorbing the wrath of God against our sin, it turns us to love him and to hate sin. He demonstrates his sympathy by acting on our behalf. So he's both sympathetic and effective for us. And the author of Hebrews goes on to offer um, yet one more perspective on why Christ came. So he came to destroy the devil, uh, to deliver the captives, 
to sympathize with us as an atoning high priest. And now finally it says he suffers temptation alongside us. He suffers temptation alongside us. So his ability to help us actually arises out of the fact that he has suffered alongside us. So you look at verse 18, this final statement on Christ and his incarnation. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus is presented here as a suffering temptation. So in this this last statement, his suffering and his temptation are tied together. Jesus was tempted in all the same ways that you and I are. So temptation, temptation arises out of the fact that, that our hearts reside in fallen, broken flesh. And our flesh resides in a broken world, which is ruled over by the devil, who in Ephesians 2 is called the the prince of the power of the air. So the flesh, the world, and the devil then conspire together to turn our hearts, to kind of twist them away from God and orient them away toward worshiping other things rather than toward worshiping God. And Jesus comes in flesh into the world over which the devil reigns. So he experiences subjection to the flesh, the world, and the, and the devil. So in this sense, he, categorically speaking, he experienced all the same temptations that you and I experience. Jesus was tempted to lust after the physiques of others and to hate his brother in his heart and to neglect the hard work of reconciliation and relationships. No doubt, uh, much of his preaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, arose out of his, um, his, his, his meditation on the law set next to his own inner experience of desires that are contrary to the law. So the law is God's expression of his character. It's how he desires for us to live in light of who he is. It's, the law is God's good desires for us. But the, the wayward orientation of the flesh is, is constantly in contradiction to the law. And so there's this experience of, of inner consternation, contradiction. And, and Jesus experiencing this, meditating on the law on the one hand, and yet this inner experience of uh, temptation on the other hand would have given him insight into the human experience, the human heart. This is a very plain meaning of chapter 4 where it says he was tempted in every respect just as we are. By the way, how much do you hate temptation? You know, how much do you hate that wayward orientation of your heart, the tendency to go astray? And don't you wish that there could just be a, a perfect symmetry in your heart between the way God wants you to live the way you want to live, and the way you actually live. It would be nice if all those things lined up. And yet Jesus was made like us in every respect, meaning that he gave up a perfect alignment of these things. You know, if you had had that, would you give that up? And yet Jesus does. He sets aside that perfect symmetry with the Father's will to experience the the defining consternation that we all live with. This human experience of inner contradiction, our messed up and misoriented experience. This is is just yet another aspect of, of Christ's unfathomable kindness to us that he would share in 
uh, temptation and, and the suffering, as it's called here. But the greatest temptation that Jesus faced, and I think the temptation referred to here in verse 18, would certainly have been the temptation to avoid the most costly obedience that was ever demanded of him. Uh, namely, obedience to the Father's will that he would die on the cross. That, that was the greatest uh, trial or temptation or testing that he would have had. Am I going to obey the Father in this way? And in all of these things, you know, all of this together is what it means that he suffered when tempted. And yet Hebrews 5 verse 8 says of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Meaning that at every point of temptation, at every fork in the road, he chose obedience to the Father. He constantly submitted to the Father's will. He never yielded to, the, to, to, uh, never yielded to temptation. Meaning that he felt the full uh, weight of temptation, not, experiencing not just the onset of it, but the full force of it. See, we never will know the, the full force of temptation because we, um, we cry uncle too early. One author said, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who yields falls before the last strain. But Jesus consistently denied the desires of the flesh, and so he experienced the full weight of temptation. For instance, we, we are tempted to sin by not forgiving. We'd, we'd rather stew over hatred and harbor a grudge in our hearts than extend grace and forgiveness to someone. And yet Jesus says, that you should forgive your brother 70 times 7. And when he says that, he means it. That's not just hyperbole. Um, that means we should actually forgive without fail every time. And he's justified in making this exacting demand because he himself fulfilled it. He forgave sins infinitely without fail. I mean, can you imagine the sins of the whole world coming against you daily? You're wronged by every person in the world constantly, and yet you forgive infinitely. I mean, this is what Christ has done for us. He refuses to harbor a grudge and so experiences the full weight of temptation, it, like in this, in this regard, to harbor a grudge, to, um, to give in to hatred rather than exercising love and forgiveness. But here it says that Jesus' suffering temptation actually helps those who are being tempted. Hebrews talks about God as a helper numerous times. He's one who provides aid. He comes alongside and, and helps. But, but how does the fact that Jesus suffered help us? You know, I know that every one of you in the room has suffered temptation, but that doesn't help me in the midst of my struggle. How does it help that, that Jesus has, has suffered when tempted? Well, verse 18 doesn't actually specify. It just says generally he helps us. But maybe from reflecting on Hebrews as a whole, let me suggest a couple ways that we are helped by thinking about, about Christ uh, suffering when tempted. First of all, um, his perseverance in the midst of temptation and suffering, his perseverance encourages us. It, it motivates us to continue in the midst of suffering temptation. 
This is actually what the book of Hebrews is all about. The author of Hebrews is writing to these people who are experiencing kind of um, an increased opposition from the surrounding culture. They um, haven't necessarily uh, experienced persecution or physical harm, but they have experienced a lot of opposition and, and kind of the, the sentiments of disdain from the neighbors and the surrounding culture. So they're remaining long without honor in the world, and they're experiencing this, this kind of pressure to yield, to set aside their, their faith in Christ. And the author of Hebrews is, is saying to them, no, continue on in the faith. Jesus is of a, a, a great reward to us. And, and he actually sets Jesus in front of them as the example for them to follow. He says, Jesus resisted sin and continued throughout life in obedience to the Father. And so he has obtained, um, it says in chapter 12, he has obtained the, the joy that was set before him. Having endured the cross, he has received the joy that was set before him. And the author of Hebrews presents this as a model for us that if we continue resisting sin and walking in faith toward the Father, that we too will obtain the joy that is set before us. So we are told to look to Jesus, to consider him, to set our eyes on him, and to follow in the path that he has marked out for us. He has learned obedience through what he suffered. You too, through suffering, temptation, learn obedience so that you might obtain the joy that is set before you. There's a number of phrases in, um, in Hebrews, uh, maybe titles that are applied to Jesus. So earlier in chapter 2, uh, it actually called him the, the pioneer of salvation, the one who has authored salvation for us. And, uh, and, and that term, the author or pioneer of salvation, is from the Greek word archegos, which is actually a, it's, it's, it's this rich title that's applied to Christ that has um, a, a wealth of meaning. He's, he's authored salvation. He's written the script of salvation. He's, a, he's the trailblazer who's gone before and, and, and opened up the trail for us the leader who, who opens up the way for others. So think of, of Jesus as um, you know, the, the leader for us of what salvation is through suffering. It's perseverance through temptation. Picture uh, a troop of commandos operating in a jungle war and they're in this intense situation and they find that their way out is blocked by a deep ravine. The situation, though, is too urgent for them to find a way around. And so the leader of this small troop of commandos casts a rope across the ravine to the other side, securing it only tentatively at first, and then, at risk of his own life, crosses hand over hand across that rope to make it to the other side where he's able to secure the rope and open up the way for the rest of the troops to follow behind him to safety. This is what Jesus has done for us. It's a pale and inadequate reflection of the way that that Jesus has marked out the trail for us. He's gone ahead at the expense of his own life and shown us what resisting temptation looks like. So the author of Hebrews, again in chapter 12, says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. The point being, Christ has resisted sin completely, and so he, he stands as a model for us, and in that sense, we are motivated and encouraged by the fact that he suffered temptation and resisted completely. 
Um, so his perseverance motivates or encourages us. But a second way that his suffering helps us is that he prays for us out of his own experience. He prays for us out of his own experience. So Hebrews uh, 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. He always lives to do this, to make intercession for you. Night and day, he continues in prayer, praying for you, that, that you would not be overtaken by the onslaught of temptation. We have an example of this in Jesus' earthly uh, life when he was um, with Simon Peter and uh, Peter was going to be tempted to Uh, deny Christ, succumb to the fear of man by denying Christ, denying that he had any relationship with him. And Jesus, considering that situation in Luke 22, looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This, this is characteristic of Jesus' intercession for us. He prays for us that our faith might not fail. He pleads to the Father that at those specific points where we are most tempted to give in, to yield to temptation because of the weight of the suffering it produces, that instead we would continue walking or, or perhaps just crawling, but at least in reliance on God, that we would continue in faith. I wonder if in the midst of temptations that you might be experiencing even now, uh, you might be able to retain this idea in your mind that, that Jesus is pleading to the Father on your behalf. He's pleading that you would continue to walk in faith, that that strength would be allotted to you for that difficulty, that the wisdom you need would be supplied to you for the complexities of life that faith and reliance on God would be your posture in whatever trial it is you're passing through so that what was said of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered, uh, might be a fitting description of you as well, that you are learning obedience through the suffering of temptation. As things that you might latch your hope onto are stripped away or perhaps never appear to begin with, you know, our tendency in those situations is to long for those things all the more. But suffering teaches us reliance on God. That even if all other things are stripped away or never come to us, that reliance on God is sufficient, that Jesus is a sufficient helper for every trial, for every temptation. As Tim Keller said, you you really don't know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You know, when all other helps for happiness evaporate and Jesus alone is left, it's at those points that we learn faith, that we learn what it means to rely on him. And, And at those very points, those points of great struggle for us, Jesus is praying for you, asking the Father, don't let that one go. Let that one continue in faith. Having known the extent and intensity of suffering and how it feels overwhelming and inescapable and unbearable, Jesus, knowing all of that, having experienced all of that for you, prays for you. Having been made like us in every respect, he prays for us. 
Can you hear the words of Jesus asking the Father? Don't let that one go. Hang on to that one. You know, what affirmation this provides us in the midst of trials and temptation. We have to train our ears to hear that voice above all others. Hearing the, the affirmation of Christ's words as he prays for us. Now it has to be said that, that the chief aim of all these truths, which are just full of comfort and grace for us, but, but the chief aim of all these truths is really to display the, the glory of God. The aim of all things, but especially of the, the sympathy and the suffering of, of Christ, is to demonstrate to us the character of God. In other words, it, it had to happen like this. There had to be sin. Christ had to die. We had to experience the redemption of the cross all in order that the the depth and richness of the wisdom and glory and the love of God might be known to us. If there there were no redemption, there would be um, incomplete knowledge of God's greatness. If there were no manger, we would have an inaccurate perception of him because we wouldn't know about his sympathy, the fact that he shares in suffering with us. If there were no cross, the extent of his love would remain obscure to us. There would be whole categories of God's character that we could not understand apart from the display of his love through the cross. He had to be made like us in every respect. It had to happen this way. That's why the symbol of Christianity has become the cross. It reveals to us what God is like. That The cross is an amplified expression of the manger. The, the suffering that Jesus experienced for the first time in the manger, you know, where he comes in human flesh and experiences for the first time human flesh as a human, um, he, takes, um, he takes all the, the pains and the, the way that flesh presses in on us. You know, have you experienced that, that sense of feeling in bondage to your own body at times where its pains kind of press in on you? He experiences that weakness, the futility of human flesh with all its restrictions. That happens for the first time in the manger and then that experience continues and grows throughout life, becoming more and more intense, culminating in the suffering of the cross. And his humility in experiencing all of this displays to us the character of God, that he is sympathetic in the midst of our suffering, um, that he suffers alongside of us because of his great love for us. In other words, um, this is good news, right? And to say that good news, this gospel about Jesus Christ helps, uh, helps us, helps humanity cannot simply mean that it helps us to feel good about ourselves or to be satisfied or happy or content. It has to mean that you know, the gospel helps us to know God through Christ. It helps us to understand who God is and knowing him is our highest good. So in seeing this display of his love um, recited here for us in verses 14 through 18, we gain insight into the character of God that, that teaches us um, how we ought to live, what the posture of our hearts ought to be in submitting to him and loving him and enjoying him in our hearts. Our savior who liberates us and our priest who sympathizes with us is so glorious 
You know, what more could I possibly add to this description to make him more appealing to you? So even as we celebrate the fact that Christ came, we plead for a fullness of fellowship with him. In other words, come again. You know, we want fullness of fellowship with such a loving Savior. So the words of longing expressed in this Christmas hymn are so appropriate. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, and friend. Let's pray together and give thanks for this savior that we have. Lord, we are grateful. And and this time of year just turns our minds and hearts again to the depth of gratitude that we ought to feel. Lord, I do ask that you would forgive us for wayward hearts, um, for wayward affections. Our emotions are not right. They are not what they should be. So give us, adjust our emotions, adjust our hearts that we might grow in gratitude for a Savior who frees us from the fear of death and who offers sympathy to us to the point of freeing us from our, uh, our slavery. I pray that these, um, these turns of the heart would be our experience today. Even as we sing now in closing, Lord, would you affirm to us the truth of these things and give us joy in them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.